The scripture reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 to 16. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the word of the Lord. So I, I thought that um, maybe I could get Daniel to preach all of the difficult passages for me in a row. Uh, but I, I got better in time to, to preach this one, so here I am. Um, my name is Brandt. If you haven't yet met me, uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Christ City Church, and it's my joy to be with you to open the Word of God and uh, to open this particular passage. It, it is a passage that's a tricky one, but it's also full of hope, full of grace, and full of mercy, uh, rich in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that's, there's a lot here for each of us. Um, but would you join me with a word of prayer as we begin? Yeah, Father, we, we come to you this morning and Lord, the, the words of Psalm 40 have been on my mind uh, all morning. That, that Lord, as for me, I am poor and needy. But you take thought for me. Father, we know that in the gospel, this is true for each of us, Lord. And this morning, it's true for us profoundly in whatever our situation might be. Um, in, in my situation, in trying to, to preach your word in a difficult passage, uh, Lord, we depend on your thought, on your care, and your compassion, your love for us. So would you work now by your Holy Spirit to bring about good fruit through your word? Lord, would you cause us to delight in your word, to delight that you are a God who is gracious and kind to us, a God who empowers us for seemingly impossible tasks through the Holy Spirit whom you've given to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we open our Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I want to just take a, a minute, a second, to remind us of where we've come from and kind of where we're going now in 1 Corinthians. We've been in this series now since last September. We've covered a lot of ground, and we need to remember that back in chapters 1 to 6, that Paul was responding to reports that he heard from Chloe's household or from people that were traveling back and forth from Corinth to where he was located in Ephesus, bringing him news that there was division in Corinth, that there was sexual immorality in the church in Corinth. Paul, can you believe what's happening in this church? You need to do something. You need to, to talk to them and to write to them. So in chapters 1 to 6, Paul was doing that and working through those places. But then now in chapters 7 to 11, we're in a new section. And chapter 7, verse 1 begins, But now for the matters which you wrote to me about. 
Paul is starting this new section where he's addressing specifically a letter that the Corinthians had sent to him, asking questions of Paul about different matters in their daily lives. And so far, we're two sermons deep in this section, thanks to Daniel. Thanks for him helping me out. I, I did have COVID. That's why I was sick. That was why I was gone. It was very kind of him to, to help me. I thought that it wouldn't hit me as hard as it did, and it, and it certainly did. Um, so keep wearing your masks. And uh, in chapters uh, 7, verses 17 to 24, um, we saw Paul um, answer the Corinthians' questions about what to do with their status. This is a culture that cares very much about your status and, and who you are and your situation in life matters, matters very much for your well-being and for your, your flourishing. And so they're wondering, Paul, what should we do? You know, some of us are slaves, some are free, some are circumcised, some are uncircumcised. And Paul applied the gospel to each of their situations and the wisdom and the grace that they have in Jesus Christ. Saying, you don't actually need to change your social situation to be pleasing to God. You don't. Who you are in Jesus is enough. You can be fully useful and serving God and, and living a meaningful life in full delight in relationship with God, whatever your situation might be. And then in chapter 7, verses 1 to 9, Paul answers some of their questions about sex. Should we stop having sex, Paul? Is that what we should do? And Paul says, well, it depends. <laughs> Are you married? Are you not married? And he starts to apply the gospel and the goodness of God's word to them, showing them that, that sex is this good gift from God for marriage. But it's to be used in a way that is in imitation of God's own love for us. It's not something to be selfishly extracted for your own benefit. It's a gift to be given and to be shared. And mutuality and self-giving love to the glory of God and the union of marriage. And then in our section this morning, Paul continues to answer these questions. And in 7, 10 to 16, he responds to this other question for the Corinthians because they wanted to know whether they should stay married or whether they should get divorced. Which is better? Paul, what should we do in our particular situations? How should we handle the place that we are at in life? And here too, we'll see that Paul applies the goodness of the word of God to instruct us for our flourishing and for our good and the wisdom of the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ to help us in whatever situation we might be in. So we have two points this morning. Nothing creative at all to these points uh, on my part. Um, just marriage and divorce between Christians in verses 10 to 12 and marriage and divorce between a Christian and non-Christians in 13 to 16. So as we open this passage of scripture, I'm going to say one more thing. Because we have to remember that we are literally reading someone else's mail this morning. And this is a letter. It's not written to Christ City Church uh, in Vancouver directly. It is for us because it's the word of God for us, but it was written to a specific audience. And it was written to a church in the first century AD in Corinth in the Roman Empire. And that means that we can't impose all of our cultural understanding of divorce or even of marriage onto this particular passage because their situation was different than ours. For example, for example, in the culture of ancient Rome, both a man and a woman could initiate a divorce. And in ancient Rome, both of these kinds of divorces were common. They were commonplace. There's actually a relationship or an analogy to Rome to, to our modern day. There's a prevalence of divorce in the ancient world, and there's a prevalence of divorce that we see in our own culture. 
And in, in ancient Rome, they had a different view of marriage because marriage was really this impermanent social arrangement that was used to the personal advantage of the person. Right? So you could get married to this man if you thought it would, it would raise your social status and put you in this better situation. You could leave him and go somewhere else to be with this person that you desired to be with. And the man could find this wife that he wanted. Then he could move on and find, send her away and find this wife. And they could kind of move around and do these things in this way, in a prevalent way where divorce was very, very common. And you can start to appreciate the prevalence of divorce when you read some of the words of the philosopher Seneca. Because he stood out and he was uncommon at the time. Because he wrote to his wife about the uniqueness of their marriage, where she wasn't running around and cheating on him. But they were faithful both mutually to one another, and they were not, uh, they had a long lasting marriage. It was uncommon. And he said this He said, For women seem to blush at divorce, uh, sorry, for women seem not to blush at divorce. And many reckon their years not with the number of consuls, it's saying kind of like not with the number of prime ministers that we've had in office but by the number of their husbands. They leave home in order to marry and they marry in order to divorce. It's a different culture than ours, but similar to ours, divorce was common. And the point we need to understand from this is that Paul's writing to the Corinthians in this passage was just as countercultural for them as it is for us. Paul's words about divorce are just as countercultural for the Corinthians as they are for us. And they're writing to him from situations that were pretty complex. Because you can remember, this is a, a new Christian faith and new converts to Christianity in these churches. And some spouses had recently become Christians, but there's, their other spouse, their, their wife or their husband had not. And they're wondering, what do we do? And others maybe are, are wondering, well, maybe I could serve God a little better if I was single. What if I got rid of my husband or got rid of my wife and I could just devote myself to this purity of my life and, and just be, you know, especially spiritual and serve God as a single person. So Paul speaks into these tricky and complex situations with wisdom from the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I do want to say this. Because I realize that divorce is a very difficult topic for many, many of us in this room. First, I want to say that this passage that we're going to look at this morning is not an exhaustive, encyclopedic look at all that the Bible says about marriage and divorce. It's, not a, it's a particular passage to a particular people in a particular situation that we can learn from. So we're not, we're not going to say everything about marriage and divorce this morning that we could. If you have questions, we'd love to chat with you. Uh, I'd love to discuss these things more. Second, I want to say that no matter who you are this morning, no matter the pain that you're personally working through because of divorce that, that's been in your own life, whether it's your own or, or maybe your parents or your grandparents or, or friends, no matter what your situation is, there is hope and there is grace for us through Jesus Christ. There is hope and there is grace for each of us in our situation because God is a God, we're going to see in this passage, who delights to take things that are broken because of our human sin and to redeem and to restore them by his grace, to bring beauty out of the ashes. It's the kind of God that he is. So I, I want to speak to you if you're feeling the, the, the pain and the sensitivity of this passage to know that there's hope for you and whatever your situation might be. So let's look together then at the text in our first point, marriage and divorce between Christians. And look at verses 10 to 11 of chapter 7. Paul says, 
To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. You see the mutuality of what Paul's saying, both to husbands and to wives don't get divorced. And you can see first in verses 10 to 11 that he's talking to Christians that are married to Christians. He seems to have two headings. He says to the married, right in verse 10, and then at the beginning of verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So he's talking to one group of people that are married to Christians, Christians married to Christians, and one group of people that are a Christian married to somebody who is not yet a Christian. And what does Paul say? Well, to this first group, he quotes them Jesus' own words. He begins teaching. It's a great place to begin by quoting the words of Jesus. Do that as often as you're able. It's a great place to start a conversation. He says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. And Paul's referring here to Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, and the parallels to this passage in the other Gospels. And there Jesus says to these Pharisees that came asking him questions, says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And Jesus goes on, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You can kind of see that reference in Paul's words, the wife should not separate from her husband. And later on in the verse, and the husband should not divorce his wife. We need to look at the background, I think, of this passage a little bit to kind of orient ourselves to divorce and to marriage as Paul's talking about it, as he's referencing Jesus' words. What was going on in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, was that this was a passage of scripture that came from a conflict that Jesus had with the religious teachers at the time. They came trying to trap Jesus in his own words and to catch him and what he was saying. And they believed that you could divorce your wife for anything as simple as burning your toast. They looked at passages in the Old Testament where where they were permitted to give a certificate of divorce to a wife and to send her away. And and they said, well, then that certificate must be given for any old reason. You know what? She burnt my food. Certificate given. Divorce happened. I can now go marry the young woman that I had my eye on earlier this week. Jesus confronts their hypocrisy because they did this out of a careful desire to dot I's and cross T's legally speaking. These were Jewish people that were governed by the law of God in the Bible. So legally, they had to have some reason to give that certificate of divorce, and they used God's word to justify their abuse, these innocent people, to hurt these women that had nothing that they had done wrong. And just to justify their selfish actions, find a new wife who cooks a little better. Maybe he's a little bit younger. And Jesus quotes Genesis chapter 2 to them. He confronts them. He says, look, you have it all wrong. In Genesis chapter 2, in the original teaching about marriage in the Bible, Jesus says, have you not read? 
You're teachers of the law. Have you forgotten the rest of what the Bible says? Have you not read that he, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This beautiful image of God who creates a male and a female to be united together in marriage for life. He says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. See, Jesus taught the Pharisees. He taught us that marriage is a good gift. It's a good gift that is created by God and is intended to last for a lifetime. He taught his followers not to cause a divorce by breaking their marriage vows. He says, if you're a follower of me, if you're one of my followers, don't just go breaking your marriage vows like this. This is not appropriate. Keep those marriage vows. And he taught that if you do get divorced, it's only legitimate to be divorced, not for a wife-burning toast. It's only legitimate if it follows a covenant-breaking act, namely sexual immorality. Look at Paul or look at what Jesus says in the rest of Matthew 19, 7 to 9. They said to him, when, uh, they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Why did he say that at all? And Moses in the, in the book of Deuteronomy, why did he talk about this? Well, Jesus said to them, It's because of your hardness of heart. It's because of sin in a broken world that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So there is a reason or a place where divorce is permitted. Jesus says right here, it's, it's sexual immorality. And before we move on, I want to speak to this a little bit because I know it's going to come up in our community groups. There's going to be questions about, okay, what are all the reasons that divorce can happen? I know that you guys are just primed to have those discussions in your community groups because you want to discuss all of the, all of the hypothetical matters of, of, of Christian laws in practice. Uh, sometimes that's more fun than doing other things. Um, well, let me say this. Churches like ours typically interpret the Bible's full teaching about divorce to include at least two categories that permit divorce. Usually sexual immorality, and abandonment. And abandonment, we'll see, is, is the reason that Paul gives uh, later on in this, this passage that we're in, um, where your, your unbelieving spouse isn't willing to live with you any longer and then, and then leaves you. And so that's typically what the church has understood. And, but within that category of abandonment, it's usually understood that physical abuse can be categorized as abandonment as well. And that's often what the church, especially in our traditions, have, have understood. But what I want you to see from Matthew and what Paul's saying to the church here is that none of these reasons necessitate divorce. I think that's important to see. They don't necessitate divorce. They permit divorce because of the hardness of human heart. It's an important difference. It's an important difference that's rooted in the good news that God is the kind of God who's at work in this world for good in the midst of human brokenness and sin. So that God is the kind of God that is even able to cause you to live in a marriage that is so difficult to be a means of grace in that marriage because of his goodness and his kindness and his empowering presence in your life by the Holy Spirit. To forgive things that seem impossible. To endure things that seem so 
difficult. And that's certainly not to say that these situations are easy. Certainly not to say that that you have to remain married if you're in a situation where one of these instances has happened. See, these are soul-crushing and difficult and awful things. So let me speak to you right now. If, If you're someone who is going through something like this in your own marriage, these things are so hard and so difficult. And I want you to know you don't have to go through these things alone, but that, that we as the elders of Christ's church, we want to help you. We want to pray for you. We want to, to walk with you through this situation. We want to surround you as a church to comfort you and to care for you. We want to connect you with our biblical counseling ministry. If you need counseling, we have resources. We want to walk with you in this. So let us draw near to you in the situations that you are in. Look at the rest. It's, uh, <clears throat> um, um, let me carry on. I'm going to move on. Um, so in summary, what Paul's doing here is he's starting to instruct the Corinthians about divorce and he, and he begins using Jesus' words. And when he begins using Jesus' words, you could summarize by saying generally, in contrast to the culture of Rome, that divorces easily and often don't get divorced. Because marriage is a good thing that is meant to last for a lifetime. And Paul adds in verse 10, if you do separate, stay unmarried or be reconciled to your husband. We might wonder, why did Paul add this little phrase? Well, most Bible scholars recognize that there was something going on at Corinth that provoked these words, even though we don't know exactly what that thing was. I think Paul was really a realist that understood that these are new Christians just learning to walk with Jesus, and that sometimes new Christians are going to do what new Christians do. They're going to make the wrong decision. And so he's trying to get a step ahead of him and say, hey, if you do get divorced for a cultural reason, then stay unmarried or be reconciled to your husband. Because these marriages haven't been broken uh, in this covenant-breaking way where these exception clauses have, have been given in Scripture. So be reconciled instead. He's seemingly fighting hard against the Corinthians' desire to embrace their culture's view of marriage. He wants them to reject their culture's view of marriage and to embrace a biblical view of marriage because it's so much better than what the culture has to offer. This brings up a good question for us, though, because I think if we're honest, we struggle with that statement I just said. Is biblical marriage really better than what, the bi- than, than what the culture says? Is it really good to stay married? Why is divorce so bad? Is there really a problem with it? Well, the Bible seems to affirm the creational goodness of marriage until death do us part. But, but is the Bible right in talking about the goodness of that command and that reality for our flourishing? Well, I think it is. And I want to say to you, it's not difficult to amass data showing the far superior outcomes for human beings who come from stable marriages. For example, if you look at the Encyclopedia for Early Childhood Development, you can read this. And that encyclopedia will read that parental separation or divorce that it's associated with increased risk for numerous psychological and academic and social problems throughout the life course. 
ongoing conflict between the co-parents after the separation, problems with poor parenting, financial difficulties resulting from the separation, and loss of contact with the non-residential parent help explain the association between parental divorce and offspring functioning. You see, wisdom is crying aloud in the streets, even through psychology, saying that divorce is bad for you. It's bad both for the parties that have been hurt by it, but it's bad for our children and it's bad for our societies. It is something that, that hurts us. And this isn't theoretical knowledge. This is very theoretical how I'm, how I'm saying it right now, but I want you to know it's not theoretical knowledge. You guys all know this. Because I am confident that everyone in this room has experienced the pain of divorce. I'm confident that it's true. In my own life, I've watched my, my mother and my, my dad, my aunts and my uncles, my cousins, and even myself in my own life wrestle with the ongoing repercussions of my grandparents' divorce. And it's easy to see all the ways that it's caused such harm and difficulty and agony to all of these people. And I think it's precisely the suffering and pain that Paul's seeking to rein in with the teaching of God's word. Saying, Christians, there's a better way. Christians, there's a better way. We can be a blessing to our society following the word of God. All right. That said, I'm sure you're wondering, yeah, Brent, you don't know my marriage. I think if you said that to Paul, he'd say, yeah, I don't know the details of your marriage, but I don't think you know the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel at work in you. See, God isn't surprised by the sinfulness of the human heart. It's not surprised that in my own marriage this week, I still like confessing to Heather like three days ago, how, how the emotions and the feelings that I had towards my wife throughout the day were horrible. They were awful. I don't need to hide that from you guys. I don't need to hide that from God. I can't hide it from God. He knows our sinful hearts and what we bring to our marriage and the problems that we bring to it that cause it to become so difficult. But God has also shown us the gospel that his own power at work in us is far greater and better than we could ever dare to hope and believe. You see, he's already sent Jesus to die for my sins. Even the sins that I committed, I think it was Wednesday. I don't remember the day. Probably Wednesday, Heather. Um, but, but he sent Jesus to die for my sins, to forgive me of, of the sins in, in my marriage. And he sent Jesus to die to, to cleanse you and to forgive you of your sins. You are washed by the blood of Jesus. He's poured out his Holy Spirit on me and, and on you into our lives to free us from slavery to sin. I don't have to keep capitulating to my sinful desires because the Holy Spirit's at work breathing life inside of me to cause me to become someone who loves God and delights to grow in obeying his word. So now, so now even though in my marriage, Heather can attest that I still sin against her. Yet I sin against her as someone that is in the process of being redeemed through the grace of God and the gospel. That means that God's at work in our lives to lead us little by little to learn to repent of our sin and to ask for forgiveness. 
He's at work in our lives to cause us to forgive when we've been sinned against, even in ways that we didn't think were possible to forgive. So the Holy Spirit breathes new life in us. He's at work to cause us little by little to grow, to learn to love our spouse when if we're honest, all we really want to do in this particular moment is hate them. And we remember that God has loved me when I was first a sinner. And then with his love poured into my heart by his Holy Spirit, I can begin to love my spouse. See, little by little, I learned to show grace and patience and mercy. We all do. Remembering that God has shown so much grace and mercy and patience with us every single day. So Christ City, could you imagine what would happen in our neighborhoods if our marriages here in this room were all characterized by a deep embrace of the Bible's teaching and a reliance upon the Holy Spirit to learn to live this way? Wouldn't that do for our culture? What kind of a witness would that be? You know, Heather and I were watching a, a show this last week that I am completely embarrassed to tell you which show it was. So I'm not going to. Um, and if you know what it was as I describe it, uh, just keep it to yourself, okay? Um, <clears throat> and it's a show uh, where people are, where are meeting and, and they're, they're, they're uh, talking to one another kind of behind the walls and getting to know one another and trying to arrange, you know, find the person they're going to marry in this kind of group setting. And it's this, this short um, you know, accelerated marriage of the person that you met behind the wall and you didn't actually get to see face to face. But it was abysmal. It was so, I was so like frustrated with this show because it was clear that nobody in the show knew anything about marriage. It was just really sad. It was sad. Nobody knew anything about what true biblical marriage was. It was so evident. All the guys in the show they're, they're looking for their potential spouse to fulfill all of their passion and that she's got to be amazing at sex and so beautiful and it's got to be fire all the way. She's got to fulfill all my desires. But I also want to stay single, essentially, and party on the side. You know, like it's going to work out and then it's going to be awesome. And then the, the women are maybe a little bit less selfish in it, um, but then are bringing all of these wild expectations for their spouses to fulfill for them and hoping that it's going to all work out. And you're watching it like, this is a, this is a train wreck. Now, this is, this is going to be terrible. And it's going to be terrible because I think we've really adopted this reality in our culture where we're looking all the time for marriage to satisfy us in a way that only God can. So let me tell you a secret. No matter how united you feel with your spouse, you were not made for your spouse. No matter how much you might say she was made for me, she wasn't, and you weren't made for her. You know why? Because Paul's already told us we were made for the Lord. We were made for him. We we're made to belong to him. We're made as human beings for the greatest union of all, to be in relationship with God through the power of his Holy Spirit. And it's only as a wife and a husband turn away from trying to use the other person to satisfy themselves in ways they were never meant to. It's only as a Christian spouse turns to God to be satisfied in him alone that they will begin to be empowered to love one another by the power of the Holy Spirit as they were created to. See, the Lord's got to come first. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So this morning, if you're struggling with your marriage, if you had a fight on the way in here and you've not talked about it yet, 
Can I encourage you to repent? But I want to encourage you to repent of the ways that you've been looking to your spouse to satisfy you where they can't. I want you to repent of the ways that you've made an idol out of your spouse. To turn instead to the Lord to be satisfied in him. If you do, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. But if you do, I'll tell you what's going to happen. He will use your marriage for the good of his kingdom. He will cause you to become in Vancouver to your friends and your neighbors, your neighbors and your family, little refuges of peace in a broken world. Refuges of family units that, that are for healing and restoration in a world that is wrecked by sin. A world that has bought these lies, has sought their satisfaction outside of the Lord, and has been chewed up and spat out, broken, depressed, and anxious and hurting. And Paul knows all of this. That's why he says what he does. He knows the goodness of marriage and he knows the power of God to help Christians stay married. So he says, stay married. And he speaks to those that are in a far more difficult situation than simply those of us married one Christian to the other. Consider our second point with me, marriage and divorce between a Christian and non-Christian. You see, here too, even in this situation, Paul is so confident in the goodness and the grace of Jesus to work powerfully in our lives. There's hope here. Look at verses 12 to 13. To the rest, and that's to those that are in this different situation, married to an unbeliever. To the rest, I say, I, I'm saying it, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any husband has a divorce who, is an un- who has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So notice first that Paul says, I not the Lord. And, and just hear me really quick about what Paul's not saying. Paul's not saying, hey, I'm saying it. You don't need to worry about actually following it. It's okay if you ignore this section. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's just distinguishing what he already said when he referenced Jesus' words. He says, look, Jesus said this stuff over here. I'm just going to quote him. And over here, I'm not quoting Jesus anymore because I'm talking about a different situation. That's all that he's doing. All right? So don't, don't try to get out from this passage uh, just because uh, you're like, well, I just, but Paul said it. I don't have to follow Paul. The word of God is breathed out by him and useful uh, for all of us and, and all of it. Um, that's a horrible quote of 2 Timothy 3.16. Um. <clears throat> A paraphrase. Yeah, that's a very bad paraphrase. Uh, but Powell now, so he's speaking to these people in the situation who are married to an unbelieving spouse. And so what was happening was that people were converting to Christianity. And, and as it happened, some would ha- be in marriages where, where they converted, but their spouse wouldn't. And this happened all the time. I was reading some stories actually in ancient um, um, in the church fathers this week uh, about instances of this happening and kind of the fallout of what was going on. Uh, it also happens today. <laughs> I know that some of you are in these situations, even here in our, in our church right now, um, where you've converted to, to follow Jesus, but your, your spouse has not become a follower of Jesus. But this is so common, there's actually two passages of scriptures that speak directly to this in the New Testament. There's this passage. There's also 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. And what does Paul say? 
we'll look again at 12 to 13. We're just going to keep it in the forefront of our minds. It says, if anyone has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So what Paul's doing here is, is this beautiful thing to Christians that are wondering, is my marriage re- redeemable? <laughs> is it good? I mean, I'm married to someone who's not a follower of Jesus. Paul's, Paul's affirming in this beautiful way the creational goodness of marriage, period. His, your marriage is good. It's good. If, you, if you're someone married to an unbeliever and you maybe wrestle with that, you need to hear that this morning. Your marriage is good. It's a gift from God. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. And Paul encourages Christian spouses then to stay with their unbelieving spouse if they would have you. And stay with them. You don't need to get divorced. You can remain in that marriage. It's a good thing. It's a gift from God. And he says that with this incredible hope that we're going to look at right now. Because there's this hope that, that Paul puts forward. It says, God can use your faithful obedience as a Christian in your marriage in this unbelievable way. Let me tell you about it. There's hope here. There's goodness here because God is a good God who does far more abundantly than we ask or imagine. Look at verse 15. It says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. So let me tell you first what this passage is not saying. It's not saying there's a backdoor route to heaven. Right? You know, you've heard of missionary dating. This is not about missionary marriages. You know, just marry a Christian friend to get into heaven. It's not what Paul's talking about here. You know, that all you got to do is just find yourself in a situation. Hey, oh, I'm good. I'm holy. Come on, God, accept me. That's not what Paul's saying. No, Paul is talking about the spouse and the children being made holy in the sense that there is a tremendous grace that comes through even one believer in a family. There's tremendous grace that comes through even one believer in a family. I'm reminded that I'm looking at Kevin. Kevin, I'm reminded of that thinking of, of your uncle. There's tremendous grace that comes to a family when even one believer is a follower of Jesus. You know, the, um, uh, the, the theologian John Calvin, he wrote this. He said, The godliness of the one does more to sanctify the marriage than the ungodliness of the other to make it unclean. This is a beautiful promise. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-4, to 4, it says something similar as well. There, Peter writes, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, so that some aren't Christians, they don't obey the word of God, they don't follow Jesus, that they may be one, that they may become Christians without a word by the conduct of their wives as they see the life-transforming power of the Holy Spirit breathing life into their spouse. See, some of you guys are in these situations right now. And some of you were raised maybe by one parent who was a Christian while the other wasn't. Or maybe some of you have been changed by, by one parent or one aunt, or one uncle, or one grandparent who is faithful to Jesus in a family that were not Christians. You know, I was talking to to Pastor Jake over at the East Vancouver Church this week, and I was reminded of of the way that God does this, because I was reminded of his story. 
And some of you guys don't know this, but Jake was raised in a family where it was only his mom who was a Christian. But God has worked in his life, brought him to faith, led him to be a pastor because of his mom's faithfulness. God worked in his brother's life, led him to faith, and led him to be a pastor because of his mom's faithfulness. And their other sibling, I believe, is also a Christian, and his dad now has converted to Christianity as well. So I want to encourage you, if you're living in this situation right now, I want to encourage you to love your spouse, to love your children, to seek by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be the best spouse that you can be in the place that you're in. And more than anything, I want to encourage you to find your hope and your joy in Jesus, to seek him with all of your heart. Look, I can't imagine how difficult it might be for you at times. I know there are very, very hard days. But I also know that God is with you, that God is profoundly good, and that he acts for those who wait for him. Now, because this passage has been abused, we also need to say just a little other thing as an addendum. And it's this. This passage is talking about people who were converted while they were married to an unbeliever. This passage is not saying that it's okay if you are a Christian and single to go and date and pursue and marry someone who's not a believer. That's not what this passage is saying. In fact, at the end of chapter 7 in in verse 39, Paul will make it explicit that if you are in this situation where you're looking to be married, to make sure you marry in the Lord, he says. Because he wants Christians to marry Christians. Because that's the the way that it ought to be in Scripture. It's going to save you from a lot of, of, of suffering and sorrow in your life. So even though Paul has clearly taught God's intention for marriage, one man, one woman for life, we also see, as we look at verses 15 to 16, that he's realistic and that not every marriage works out between a Christian and a non-Christian. Paul says, But if the unbelieving partner separates it, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, not enslaved to the marriage. Because God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So I'm sure that in Corinth at the time, there were some people that were holding on to their marriages, thinking that I have to stay here. (laughs) I can't let my unbelieving spouse go because what's going to happen if I do? And Paul's saying, if they want to leave you, you can entrust them into the, the good care of God. You can entrust their situation to God. You can. You don't have to remain in that marriage. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't actually know. Even though God can powerfully work through one Christian in a family, you don't know what's going to actually work out at the end of, at the, end of the day. And you can entrust those things that you don't know with God. And you can let that person go. And you can be divorced and even remarried. See, that's where we find this other clause, this other exception and rule to marriage in the Bible. When, when you've been abandoned by a spouse that is intent on, on leaving. So with all of that said, I want to close with this story. You see, I, I was born at a time when my mom's heart was breaking. I was born into a family 
where, where my mom was just finding out the news of all that had gone on in her parents' marriage that had been hidden. And as, as her parents sought a divorce. And my childhood and my life has been characterized by watching my mom try to put the pieces together of, of her life and of her heart. And the brokenness that, that came from these, these awful things that had so affected her. And as time went on in my childhood, my family even became this place of refuge from my grandmother. So she was a very difficult woman, and I grew to love her very, very dearly. And she was lonely and heartbroken and always in my house. And then as I matured and, and started to, to figure out and put the pieces together of what had happened, I began to see like, oh my goodness, this isn't just a divorce between my grandparents. Like my uncles and my aunts are deeply affected by this divorce. And not just them, but all of us cousins, like we've been really affected by this divorce. And I began to see with more clarity all the ways that, that, that sin was never isolated, that sin is never isolated, but that it hurts far more people than you ever intend. And yet, I share this story because I want to remind you that God is a God who redeems what is broken. That he's a God who uses even bad things for good. And he's a God who heals wounds and brings redemption to impossible situations. So a number of years ago now, it's before my grandma began to, to suffer severely from Alzheimer's. I was sitting with her and I, I just, she, we, were, we had a family event and you know, we're all talking and she wanted to get away from the noise and we sat in this different room and we started chatting together. And I just asked her, I said, Grandma? I said, I said like, what happened? I was pretty blunt with her. I said, Grandma, you, you, you did, I think, everything wrong. <laughs> and we have, a, we have a really close relationship. I said, but, but, like, but look at your family. And she just started crying. And she poured out her heart to me. Both my grandparents are repentant followers of Jesus. She poured out her heart to me and says, Brand, I don't know. It's just the grace of God. It's the grace of God to have worked in this family for good despite my sin. when I look back on my life, I realize that it's true for me. I realize the way that my own mom has a rich and deep relationship with Jesus in large part because of this divorce. Because she sought him with all of her heart in those years when her heart was broken. And her love for the Lord has impacted me in ways that I can't fathom. I look at the ways that my aunts, my uncles, and my cousins all have similar stories of repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus and God repairing what is broken and bringing, bringing this beautiful story out of the ashes of sin and destruction. So let me encourage you, whatever your pain, whatever your situation, whatever your own sin Maybe you're feeling the guilt of the ways that you've not done things right. Know that God is a God of redemption. He's a God who heals wounds. He's a God who forgives sin. And he's a God who restores broken situations to his glory. So would you join us? Would you step in close to us, the church family, if, if you're in one of these situations? to seek the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, 
to turn to him and to, to ask him to bring healing and forgiveness and renewal to your own life and your own situation. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to learn what it means to follow Jesus and to reap life. We want to know what it means. God, we want to know, we want to be empowered by your Holy Spirit to live life. Would you teach us how to live according to your word? Would you empower us for the situations that we're facing right now that seem utterly impossible? Father, would you do this all for your glory so that the world around us would look at what's happening in this church and that it would be a testament to a God who breathes life, who breathes life in a world of darkness and sorrow and pain. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.